Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is a picture of Florence Chadwick. She was a famous long-distance swimmer of the middle of last century. And in 1952, Florence tried to swim from the coast of California to Catalina Island, a distance of some 26 miles. For 15 hours, she endured choppy waters, possible shark attack and extreme fatigue. Then thick fog set in. She gave up. It turns out afterwards that she learnt she gave up only one mile out from her destination. Two months later, Florence tried again. This time, though it was foggy, she made it. And when asked afterwards what made the difference for her, she said this. The first time, all I could see was the fog. The second time, I kept a mental image of that shoreline in my mind while I swam. Visualising her destination was how she persevered 
in her journey. How much do you think about heaven? For me, it's barely at all. I get so caught up in the busyness of life, I can barely think about next week, let alone eternity. But I wonder if it would help me if I thought about it much more. Reminded myself frequently that all of this will one day be over and then I'll have eternal life to enjoy. It would particularly help me in times when I'm struggling, when things seem very hard. How much would it help me to stick at it in the Christian life if I only reminded myself that this life was not all there is, that this is just the waters before I step out onto the coastline of eternity? Well, friends, that's the big idea of today's passage. That we should persevere because of what God has in store for us, eternal life. God has just told us to persevere because of our confidence in what Jesus has already done for us. Look at 10 verse 36 and following. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we, not, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We're to persevere because of our confidence in what Jesus has done. And now our writer gives us a whole list of Old Testament examples of such faithful perseverance. Why did they keep going? Because they knew what was ahead of them. Eternal life, a better resurrection, verse 35. And so what should we do now? We should run the race with perseverance and look to the one who's gone before us, Jesus. So let's get into it. It starts with a discussion of the nature of faith. It's really helpful to look at it there. Chapter, 12, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, some think that the word faith really just means blind belief. That is, they think that faith is belief without evidence. People will even say that that's what faith is by definition, because if you had evidence, well, then it wouldn't be faith. In the most extreme examples of this definition, some people think that faith is really belief despite the evidence. It's just bloody-minded wish fulfilment. You know, it's a bit like the Red Queen in Alice Through the Looking Glass who said that she always tried to believe at least six impossible things before breakfast. Is that what faith is? And because of this definition, many have rejected the Christian faith as illogical. So Richard Dawkins defines faith as blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. And as such, he goes on to say, faith is really a form of mental illness. And therefore, faith, being belief that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of any religion. Now, I've got to say that if that is how God defined faith, I would agree with Dawkins. But it's not. Note carefully how faith is defined in verse 1. Faith is not contrasted here with reason, but sight. It's the assurance of what we do not see. 
It's not saying that we should believe things without reasons. He's saying we can believe things we can't see so long as we have a good reason for doing so. So, for example, I can't currently see Jesus' resurrected body. It was raised 2,000 years ago and it's now ascended to heaven. But that doesn't mean that I can't believe in it just because I haven't seen it. I just need a good reason to do so. So John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus is talking uh, to uh, Thomas, who's just seen his resurrected body. And then Jesus told Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Thomas and the other disciples could see Jesus' body and so could believe on that basis. But Jesus says it's possible to believe, in fact, even blessed to believe, even if you haven't seen it. But how can they do that? Well, because they can listen to the reports of those who did. John goes on in verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, John says, did lots of other signs, that is miracles, on top of his resurrection that are not recorded in his book. But these signs, these miracles, including the resurrection, are written down for us so that we can believe and that by believing can have life in his name. You may not have seen them yourself, but you can read the accounts of those eyewitnesses who did and rationally believe on that basis. Now, I do think the Bible says that you need more than just evidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and lots of other Christian things. Because our hearts, not just our heads, are involved. Left to ourselves, we naturally don't want to believe in Jesus. Theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg puts it like this. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. No, we need the Holy Spirit to change our hearts so we can accept the evidence, given all the changes it will mean that we will need to make. But we need, or at least are entitled to ask, at least for evidence before we believe. Can I just pause for a moment to speak to our visitors here today who maybe aren't Christians yet? First of all, can I say, you're really welcome here. We're so glad you've come to find out more about Jesus here with us today. But can I also issue an apology upon any Christians or on behalf of any Christians who have ever told you, don't worry about all the evidence, just believe. You've just got to have faith. That's nothing that God ever tells us. God welcomes us looking at the evidence. You don't have to leave your brain at the door to become a Christian. Rosalind Pickard is Professor of Computing at MIT in the States, and she's also a Christian. But she wasn't always. For most of her life, she was actually an atheist who thought that only stupid people believed in God. Until she began reading the Bible in order to debunk it. She started with the book of Proverbs, and this is what she said. When I first opened the Bible, I expected to find phony miracles, made-up creatures, 
and assorted gobbledygook. To my surprise, Proverbs was full of wisdom. I had to pause while reading and think. It made her think so hard that she actually read the rest of the Bible and then became a Christian. The point is, if you're looking into Christianity, can I assure you, you don't have to suspend your intelligence to become a Christian. You can test the evidence. But please do come and test it. Don't be lazy, just assuming that it's nonsense. Try it. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by how robust it is. Come to one of our Jesus Works courses and read the Bible for yourself. Because faith is not belief without reason. It's just belief without sight. Now, what is it here in Hebrews chapter 11 that these people were believing without seeing? Well, they were believing in the final resurrection, the coming of God's new creation. And why can't these people in Hebrews chapter 11, people from the Old Testament, why can't they see that? Is it because it doesn't exist? Well, no, simply because it hasn't happened yet. Faith is also confidence in what we hope for, verse 1. It is future-oriented. And it's that future, the hope of heaven, that our writer turns to next. You see, Hebrews chapter 11 is really just a long list of people God made promises to about the future and who trusted those promises. So take, for example, Noah. Look there at verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen... In holy fear, built an ark to save his family. So by faith, when he was warned about things not yet seen, that is the flood, in holy holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. God warned him that the flood was coming. Now, I believed God's warning, even though he'd not yet seen the flood, because it hadn't happened yet. And so he built the ark. Abraham's the same. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. By faith, when God told him to go to a new land, he both went, verse 8, and settled, verse 9, there. Because God had promised him that he would one day give it to him. And the rest of this chapter is just full of examples like this. Sarah is promised a son, verse 12. And so she trusts that promise. Judges, kings and prophets are promised a kingdom, verse 33. And so they trust that promise. Faith is not just trust in God generally. It's trust in the promises that he makes to us. Now, what are the promises in this chapter about? Well, in one way or another, they're all promises to save people from death. Look at Enoch in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Noah, verse 7, is saved from death in the flood. Abraham is saved from the death of childlessness and given the life of descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, 17 to 19. Moses is saved from being murdered as a baby, verse 23. 
Israel is saved from death at the hands of the Egyptians and Jericho and the Canaanites, 29 to 34. The point is that all of these promises are promises to save people from death. And yet, the writer says that these people still didn't receive what was promised. Look there at verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, how can that be? I mean, they were saved from death, weren't they? I mean, Noah still got on the ark, didn't he? Isaac still got off the altar, didn't he? So how can our writer say that they didn't get what was promised? Because what they were really being promised was eternal life. They died but then that they would be raised and never die again. That's why some of them were willing to die now. Verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. You see, they knew that God's salvation from death now was just a picture of a greater salvation, a better resurrection to come. That's why they kept trusting God's promises right to the end. Look at verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. An old missionary couple uh, had been working in Africa for years, and they were returning to New York City to retire They were in a bad way. They had no pension. Their health was broken. And frankly, they were afraid and discouraged and just beaten. They discovered that they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting holidays in Africa. No one paid any attention to the missionary couple. They watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's arrival with passengers peering around trying to catch a glimpse of the great man and the crowds gathered on the docks. As the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, there's something wrong here. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these years and no one cares about us? This man comes home from a hunting trip and everyone makes a fuss of him, but no one gives two hoots about us. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat for that night, hoping the next day to see what they could find for work. That night, the man turned to his wife. I can't take this, he said. God is not treating us fairly. Well, why don't you go into the bedroom and tell him, his wife said. Well, a short time later, he came back out of the bedroom. But now his face was calm. His wife said to him, what happened? He said this. God settled it with me. 
I told him how bitter I was that the president should get a huge homecoming when no one met us when we returned home. But when I finished, it's as though God put his hand on my shoulder and said, yes, but you're not home yet. They weren't home yet. And then the writer tells us why he didn't bring them home yet. Why he didn't give them all that he'd promised them, this new creation. Look there at verses 39 to 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Isn't that amazing? God was waiting for us to be saved, all who would trust in Jesus. Before he would bring in that new creation so that all of us could enjoy it together. See how he loves us. So what are we now to do knowing that there are so many people waiting for their better resurrection until we have finished our race? Well, we're to run. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The picture here is of the Christian life as a race. It's like a marathon. And like a marathon, it can be lonely and hard. I always really feel for the marathon runners when I watch them on TV, particularly when they're out on the road. Because they're all on their own, aren't they? They're so lonely. And so much can go wrong, can hinder them, trip them up. Well, it's the same with the Christian life. So much can hinder us, trip us up. The suffering and the sin. So many things can stop us finishing our race. But you know which part of the marathon I like best? It's when they come into the stadium at the end. After all that time on the road, all that time by yourself, where all you can hear is the beating of your own heart and the labouring of your own breath, you see the stadium in the distance. And as you get closer, you can hear the buzz from the crowd. And then suddenly you're inside and the buzz becomes a roar as a hundred thousand people get to their feet and cheer you on as you run down the track. That's got to be an encouraging feeling, right? To hear all those thousands upon thousands of people cheering for you to finish the race. Well, Christian, you've got millions upon millions of people cheering for you to finish the race. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Every believer who has ever lived and every one of them is up on their feet in the stands roaring for you. Run! There's Abraham, father of the patriarchs, receiver of the covenant. And he's up on his feet in the stands, KFC bucket on his head, waving his staff around his head, yelling, run! There's Moses with his big beard and his two tablets, and he's bashing his tablets together saying, run! And there's Enoch looking around saying, I've never even died. <laughs> but he's saying, run! Everyone's calling for you. Everyone's encouraging you. Run! For every Christian who's ever been tempted to withhold from God, generous Abel cries, run! Run! 
For every Christian who's ever been scared of what people think, brave Noah cries run. For every Christian who's worried about their future, calm Abraham cries run. For every persecuted Christian, persecuted Moses cries run. For every Christian who's ever fallen into sexual sin, adulterous but forgiven David cries run. For every Christian woman who's ever lost a child, the women of the old covenant cry run. You see, we think the Old Testament's just a book, don't we? But it's not. It's a stadium. And every time you open it, you can hear its roar. Run! Run. But they don't just say run. They say look. You see, everything I've said so far would just be a pep talk if the next bit weren't here. You see, it's all very well to be told to run, isn't it? Run through hindering pain, run from entangling sin. But how do you do it when you're still a finite, sinful person? You can have as many people screaming for you as you like, but that won't help you if you're exhausted and flawed and still not sure if you're going to make it. You see, that's where our best hope kicks in. Because someone has already run the race before us. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He's gone ahead, cleared our path, died our death. And now he rules on high so that we can finish the race too and live with him forever. So, verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. John Akwari was a Tanzanian marathon runner competing at the Mexico Olympic Games in 1968. At the 19-kilometre mark, he fell and was very badly injured. And yet he still finished the race. He came dead last, a full hour behind the winner, but to great applause. And when he was asked why he finished, he said this. My country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. Well, Christian, God has sent you to finish the race, to persevere to the end. Jesus has died for you. He's made a way for you. He's holding out his hand to you. So when you stumble, run. But more importantly, look. Because you've got a resurrected man waiting for you at the finish line. And he will bring you home to heaven, your better resurrection, forever. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that for our sake, Jesus ran this race before us. That he died our death on our behalf. That he has been raised to life and now holds out a better resurrection for all who put their faith in him. Father, we thank you that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. Amen.